Well, we're going to really deal kind of with two big questions. In fact, uh, one great question that you should always ask when you're reading the Bible. If, you, if you've never really studied the Bible or you're wondering uh, what's a great way to kind of dig into the Bible, there's one really great question that almost always applies anytime you read the Bible. It's this. What does it say about God? What does this passage say about who God is? What do I learn about God from this part of the Bible? And then the second question kind of follows that one, which is basically, what do I do about it? How do I then respond? If this is who God is, how am I to respond? That's the way we're going to look at this passage today. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been in a series on Daniel. We're just beginning it here uh, in our uh, third week now, and really exciting to dive in to what God is showing us in Daniel. So we're going to look at those two big questions. What do we learn about God from Daniel 2? And uh, what do we do with it? How do we respond? So here's the first thing that we learn about God from this passage, is that God alone is king. God alone is the powerful and almighty king over all things. You know, you hear that really resonate throughout the passage, but uh, probably most so in those little, those little verses that may be set off in your Bible from 20 to 24 where Daniel is praying and he's pouring out praise about who God is. Listen to some of these great things that he says about God. Verse uh, 21, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. Wow, that's a big statement to make, isn't it, about God? That he is in control of the times and the seasons. That he sets up kings and he removes kings. You heard, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers and magicians, the way that they approach uh, the king, you know, with reverence and honor is they say, O king, live forever. Well, not so much, according to verse 21 there, right? It's God actually who is in charge of the times and the seasons. It's God who is in charge of setting up kings and removing kings. So all of the machinations of this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who really did rule much of the known world at that time, had set up a kingdom that was so glorious that, you know, the gardens in Babylon would become one of the ancient wonders of the world. Even this king was completely under God's control, as would be the Persian king after, and Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror after that, and the Roman Empire after him, and all of the empires to follow. This is a helpful thing for us to remember how God is in control. It's a helpful thing for us to remember that there is one king in the universe, and that king oversees all, and he is in control of the times and the seasons. He, he, he sets up regimes, and he removes them. There is nothing outside of his hand. I mean, we are walking into the anxiety of election season, and that is a comforting fact to know that there is one king, and he is sitting on his throne. And he is ruling, and he is reigning, and we get to claim membership in that kingdom. It's also really helpful to remember that that king can actually see things that we don't. You know, one of the things that is scariest really is darkness. But isn't it amazing that we hear Daniel say those things, you know, that within the darkness, even like you see. L listen to what he says here. He says here in, uh, in verse... 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. 
He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, says this. He sees in the dark because the light spills out of him. Isn't that great? We actually just sung even of that in that last song that we sung. He sees in the dark because the light spills out of him. When Joy and I were just married, we had a, a dog named Walter, uh, an adopted Springer Spaniel. And um, Walter was, I'd say, generously a little bit neurotic, probably is probably the, the, the nicest thing to say about him. He, um, you know, he, he, he almost chewed off his, his own leg because it was itchy. And uh, he almost chewed off the leg of our neighbor, actually, as well, because he didn't like bicycles. He liked our neighbor just fine when he was walking on the ground. But as soon as you got on a bicycle, Walter turned into a maniac, and he wanted to just, just eat you. And so uh, he was just an odd dog. Uh, and when we got him, adopted him, the, the folks that we got him from told us that he was pretty much housebroken, which means not housebroken. And there was one night, I remember uh, pretty distinctly getting up in the middle of the night, having to, to go do something, and, and kind of walking in the darkness, making my way, and looking over and seeing just this little pile on the floor in my bedroom. And uh, of course, just rage started to well up in my face. I think probably even in the dark, uh, you could tell my face was red. And I did that thing, you know, with a dog where you lower your voice. Walter, you come over here. And I grabbed him, you know, kind of by the scruff, and I kind of like... Did that thing where you rub his face, you know, in it. I don't know why um, we do that, but I did, and I was so angry. And I'd gone, like, into the kitchen to get something to clean it up with and flipped on the light in the kitchen. I came back in, and in the light, I could actually see that it was a sock that I had left on the floor. So I had gone crazy on poor Walter for my own, you know, untidiness. Because in the darkness, we make mistakes, right? It's hard to navigate life when it's dark. Maybe that's literal darkness, like my stupid mistake with my dog. Or maybe that's, you know, figurative darkness, the darkness of wondering, you know, what's my job going to look like a year from now? Am I going to have one? What's my company going to look like? What's my retirement going to look like? Am I going to get sick? Are my parents or my, you know, elderly friends, are they in danger? Are we ever going to have normal life again? That's darkness that's in many ways kind of hanging over us that makes it really unclear for us to see the future that makes us, you know, so secure, we oftentimes feel. But isn't it so encouraging that we follow a king who can see in the dark? That we follow a king who can see in the dark because light literally spills out of him. He asks us to come not and see in the dark, but simply to follow him because he does. We have a king. God alone is king. That's the first thing that we learn about who he is. Secondly, we learn that his kingdom actually will last forever. His kingdom and his reign will last forever. That's really the main point of the portion of Daniel 2 that I read, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Let me refresh your memory. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that wakes him up in the middle of the night, and it's a dream of a giant. He sees a giant in front of him, and he's got a gold head, and he's got a, a chest that's silver, and he's got bronze kind of thighs in the middle, and then iron legs and feet that are weirdly mixed with iron and clay. You can maybe understand why he would be a, a, a little freaked out in the morning. That's a scary dream. 
And so he wakes up to this dream. He doesn't know what to do about it. And he finally stumbles upon Daniel, who reveals what the dream means. And he tells him that he's actually been given this dream by God, who is revealing to him the future. What's going to come, up, come to pass, not just in his life, but really in uh, the, the political sphere of the next hundreds of years. And what Daniel says is that these things, these little pieces of this giant represent kingdoms. That that golden head is Babylon. That the, the silver arms are the kingdom that will come after him. That's Persia. That then that, uh, that bronze part in the middle is the, is the, is the Greek kingdom. The Alexander the Great who comes in and conquers you know, most of the known world. And after him is the empire of the Romans, the bronze, I mean the, the iron that rules, uh, that crushes almost everything. But we actually see in history that that empire was pretty tenuous. It's standing on feet of clay kind of mixed with iron. And Daniel says, you know, all of these things are going to come to pass. They're all going to seem really great, and they're going to be really one kind of bigger than the other, and we're all going to look at them with awe. But there's this one little stone that's going to come out. The stone has just kind of been hanging out there through all of them. We read in the Bible that it's the stone that the builders rejected that will be the chief cornerstone. And of course, as we open up the pages of the New Testament, what we see is that this stone that grows into a mighty stone that is as big as a mountain that covers the whole face of the earth is Jesus and the kingdom of God that King Jesus brings to crush all of them. In Psalm 2, we hear this proclamation about the king, that he will rule with a rod of iron, that he will rule the nations, that his kingdom and his rule will actually spread throughout all of the earth. And when you open up the Gospels in the New Testament, you see that that's the king, crowned in glory and honor, taking up that wonderful prophecy of Psalm 2, that King Jesus is reigning. And we hear this wonderful proclamation in verse 44. Let me read it to you again. Verse, yes, verse 45, this kingdom shall not be left to another. It shall break into pieces all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom will stand forever. How great it is to remember that we serve not only the only one and powerful king, but that that king has established a kingdom that will reign and rule forever. Well through all of the empires that rise and fall. That his kingdom stands in all of the machinations of history. That his kingdom has stood across barbarians and across Roman rulers. That his kingdom has stood against fascism, which has come and gone. Against communism, which has come and gone. In the midst even of, of, of democracy that will, by the way, probably also come and go. The kingdom of God will last forever. That is glorious news for us. But here is maybe the most surprising thing that we learn about God, is that this great king, whose kingdom will last into eternity, actually wants to be known. He wants us to know him. Listen again to these uh, great verses. Daniel says in verse 27, Daniel answered the king, he said, no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Isn't that fantastic? 
You know, the word, the verb used for reveal is used uh, six times in this passage. Uh, and and the, the word for the way that we translate make known is used another ten times. And then another ten times we hear the verb for declare. So we have in this passage over and over, 26 times, revealing, declaring, making known. God wants to tell us something. He wants to tell us that he wants us to know him. That he is actually declaring himself to us. That he is revealing himself to us. That he wants us to know him. Uh, I, don't, I lived in Austin for 15, almost 20 years, I guess. And there's a, there's a restaurant in Austin, a Mexican restaurant called El Arroyo, that is, um, has pretty good food, but really an amazing sign. A marquee out front that changes every day. If you've ever driven you know, down 5th uh, Street, uh, you've probably seen this sign. Let me, let me show you just a few of these signs if we have them up here. Why am I the only naked person at this gender reveal party? Probably my favorite one. Let's look at some of the others. My hands are consuming more alcohol than my mouth. That's kind of a, a nice relevant one these days. Uh, in 20 years, our country will be run by people homeschooled by day drinkers. Yeah. And uh, this one. There are two ingredients in trail mix. M&Ms and disappointment. And this is one I like. Do people run marathons? Do they know that they don't have to? Right? Um, exactly. And this is the last one. Last queso stop before a bunch of yoga studios. Nice commentary on Austin. That first one's probably my favorite, right? Uh, do we have another one here? No. That first one's probably my favorite, right? It's, uh, you know, the gender reveal party. Oh, we do. Yeah, there you go. That, was that about me, Jim? The gender reveal party has kind of become a thing these days. We didn't have those. When I was having kids, we didn't have gender reveal parties. Um, but I really love it because it's really exciting uh, to be together with somebody and to, to, to be able to celebrate this amazing mystery. And really what the parents are saying is, we have something really important and really wonderful to reveal to you, and we want you to celebrate it with us. Isn't that great? That's so much of what's going on actually here in Scripture, and so much of what we know about God is that he has kind of gathered everybody together, and he has said, you know what, I have this incredible mystery. The Apostle Paul writes about this all the time. I have this incredible mystery, this super exciting news, and I want to share it with you. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to tell you who I am. Kevin DeYoung, the author and pastor, tells this story. It's kind of a, a, a traditional story about six blind men uh, around uh, an elephant. And they're all trying to figure out actually what it is they're touching. And so the person that's standing beside the elephant's leg is saying, oh, no, this is a tree, right? I'm, I'm holding the trunk. We're obviously standing around a tree. And the one who's standing by the elephant's ear says, no, no, it feels like the shape of a fan. This is a, this is a fan that we're, that we're in front of. And the one who's by his side is saying, no, it's a big wall. It's a big wall where we have. And the person holding his tail is saying, no, I'm holding a rope. None of them really know what they are seeing or what's in front of them because they are blinded to some extent. And it's a pretty good illustration, I think, of what it looks like for human beings to try and understand God in our own limitations. Is that we're standing there blind in so many ways trying to grasp and figure him out and we're only getting a little part of it. But here's where the illustration breaks down. Is that what if the elephant could speak? What if the elephant could speak and he could say, no, 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 that's not a tree trunk, it's my leg. No, that's not a fan or a rope or a wall. This is all of me. 
And that is actually the beauty of how God has revealed himself to us. He has given us his word. He has given us his son, the word made flesh. And he has told us, this is who I am. I'm not hiding from you. I'm not going to keep you in blindness. I'm not going to keep you in darkness. I'm the one who can actually walk through darkness because the light shines out of me. And guess what? I'm using that light to reveal who I am. It's glorious news that the king of all creation, the one whose kingdom will last forever, wants us to know him, wants us to know who he is. So how do we respond to that? Well, we've got a couple of examples actually here. The first is a really good example of Daniel. The way that Daniel responds to seeing who God is is displayed throughout this passage. And the first thing that we see is he responds with humility. In verse 30, he says, you know, listen, this isn't because I'm something great. This is actually because God is something great. See, when Daniel is kneeling before this king, before the king of all creation, he realizes that while I'm on my knees, I might as well confess my own frailty. That, friends, truly is the heart of what it means to respond to God. If it doesn't include humility, then the equation is going to be completely thrown off. Because humility, our own understanding of our frailty before this king, our own understanding of where we stand before this king is part and parcel to our understanding of the good news. But he moves on, right? He's not just humble. He actually responds with prayer and praise. While I'm on my knees humbly before this God, I might as well start praying. And it's great, isn't it, that Daniel, when he finally gains audience with the king, before he goes in, he calls a prayer meeting with all of his friends. And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to get together, and we're going to pray. And what pours out of him is incredible praise. Really the high point in so many ways of this whole passage, this chapter, is him declaring all of these wonderful things about who God is. See, when we come into contact with the king of all creation, when we recognize him in his holiness, in his glory, in his majesty, what our hearts should do is pour out in praise. We repeat back to him the glory of who he is. Third, we also see that Daniel acts in wisdom. His response to the king's messenger is pretty amazing. The messenger comes to say, oh, by the way, you're about to all be killed. And instead of panic, he responds actually in wisdom, in prudence, in discernment. When we understand that God's kingdom lasts forever, we actually can, can, can move about in our world with wisdom. We talked about this, this this summer, what it means to have skill in godly living. That's wisdom. And then finally, also, he responds in kindness. Kindness not just to his friends, but actually, did you catch this, to the pagan astrologers and magicians. He tells the king, don't kill everybody even though he could have easily said, yeah, sure, those are all my rivals, let's wipe them all out. He doesn't, he responds in kindness. See, when, when we see, when we are revealed the Lord's goodness and kindness, when we see his kindness toward us, that the majestic king of all has actually given himself for us, then we actually respond in kindness as well. All right, let's look at a negative example, Nebuchadnezzar. He's our other example of how you respond to this, and he is just the opposite. Did you pick up just kind of on the way that Nebuchadnezzar acts, his emotional state through all of this? It is anxious. It is panicked. He is, uh, he is left in utter disappointment and disbelief for most of the passage. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is clinging to 
just isn't doing the trick, is it? <laughs> he asks all of the smartest people that he knows to come and explain this dream to him that's freaked him out. He is in the midst of, you know, running an empire, which I'm assuming would be pretty hard. He has got all of the wealth and all of the power, more so than anybody probably in the world at this time. And when you've got it all, don't you always want to hang on to it all? That can bring up a lot of anxiety. And so here Nebuchadnezzar awakes to this terrible dream. He knows in some way that it has some sort of major implication on his life, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So he goes to the smartest people that he knows, and he says, tell me what's going on, or I'll kill you. It's incredible anxiety and the rage that comes out of it. And of course they can't. They tell him, what do you think we are, Nebuchadnezzar? Gods? There's no possible way we could do that. I love the way that Tim Keller says it. He says, counterfeit gods always disappoint. Counterfeit gods always disappoint. You see that so clearly in Nebuchadnezzar right there. He's placed all of his hopes, everything that's going to make him better on these guys that are going to interpret his dream for him. And they say what is most true in the passage, there's no way we can do it. We're just humans. Isn't it true of us too? That all of the things that we place so much weight on, so much freight on in our lives, and we think they're just going to kind of carry us along and make us happy, they always disappoint, don't they? The desire for everybody to think that we're something special pretty much always falls through. The desire that we have that we want to always be the best or we want to achieve or we want to be given glory or some sort of affirmation it never really, really comes through, does it? The money that we think is going to make us feel safe and secure or give us this kind of spike in joy, it always dissipates at some point. All of the new stuff, the new experiences, the new relationships, the new achievements, they always wear off because that's what counterfeit gods do. They always disappoint. If you're finding yourself in that place, today, and I find myself there frequently, I do have encouraging news, because we see as this passage goes on that God continues to reveal himself. I love the end of this, where we get to see Nebuchadnezzar proclaim who God is in his weird and kind of broken and kind of messed up way. He's not converted, I don't think, just yet, but he has just been hit over the head with truth, and he's having to grapple with it. God has revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's really blown apart his world. We've felt the pulling out of the rug of the counterfeit gods, and now the revelation of the real and true king, and Nebuchadnezzar's having to deal with that today. If that's where you are today, let me encourage you, continue to ask the Lord to reveal himself, because he loves to do so. He, as we read throughout the rest of scriptures, that's all that he does. It's maybe my favorite verse in this whole chapter is verse 11, right? When, when the, the, the Nebuchadnezzar's magicians and all these people that are supposed to have all the answers, they say, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, let's break it down for you here really quickly. The only people that can do this are the gods, and their dwelling is not with flesh. The only ones who can do this are the gods, and their dwelling is not with flesh. But friends, guess what? <laughs> when you open up John 1, what does John tell us? The word became flesh and dwelt with
his people. God has revealed himself to us in the most glorious way by taking on our flesh. And as you continue to read through the Bible, you get to something like Revelation 21, where God proclaims to John his vision of what is to come. And you know what he says? My home is going to be with you. My dwelling is going to be with you. I'm going to set up shop again with my people, and I'm going to live with them. We have a king who is glorious and enthroned above. His kingdom is everlasting, and he loves, loves to reveal himself to us. Will you pray with me that he would continue to do that in our hearts even today? Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you for your position. We thank you for your attributes, even for the things, Lord, that in our own blindness, in our frailty, in our sin, in our limitations, in our finiteness, we still can't totally understand. But we are so grateful that we have a God who sees in the dark and who loves to reveal himself to us. Lord, let us respond today in kindness, in wisdom, in humility, and in praise. Show us how to do that by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.